0: We're continuing through our series in Romans. So if you have your Bibles term with right me to Romans chapter six, we're gonna be looking at just a, a small portion at the opening of the chapter, verses one through four. Um Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have that, I think it will pop up on the screen so that you can follow along as well. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. This God is God's word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? if you can, just bow your head and pray with me. Father, we come to you and we uh, depend upon you in this moment. We cannot come to these words and simply manufacture some things for ourselves. We ask that by your spirit, you would speak this. open our eyes to a new reality. You with your grace, work and love. So, I think you'll agree with me that there's a significant difference between uh, a statement and a command. It's almost not even worth saying. It's so obvious. Think, think about the following sentences. The dishes are dirty. Versus, you need to wash the dishes. Right? If I say the first to my wife, the dishes are dirty, so will kind of probably in a whole hum kind of way go, yes, yeah, they're dirty. Like They usually are with nine people at our house. Like the dishes are dirty. Okay. If I say the second to my wife, okay, you need to wash the dishes. Let's get a head turn. Curry eyeball disturbed kind of look as well deserved in such a way. one's a statement, one's a command in in English grammar, we call this distinction uh, the difference between an indicative, what is, and an imperative, what needs to be, what needs to happen. The book is on the table is a statement of fact. Put the book on the table is a command. It's an imperative. And I think that many of us come to the Bible with the expectation that when we read what the Scriptures say, what we're reading are imperative, commands. Do this. Make sure you do this. Don't do this. Uh, and at least that's often the way we perceive it. And while, again, there are certainly many imperatives to be found in Scripture, every one of those is grounded and based on, founded upon, and indicative, just a statement of fact. And it's essential, it's, it's so important that we understand this morning that, uh, what kind of, kind of statements, uh, we're gonna read in these first four verses of Romans chapter six. It's imperative that we understand that we will not find a command in these first four verses. you are not going to hear a command. God, by His Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, does not deliver a command in these first four verses. Paul is simply going to communicate with us what is. He's simply going to communicate a reality that we need to know and understand and agree with. He's not telling us what to do this morning. He'll he'll do that later next week perhaps uh, later on in chapter six, but he is simply going to lay down some foundational realities that we just it's the air we breathe and we need to recognize. So he sets out in this new section in chapter six, uh, laying down what is by by asking the Roman Christians uh, a question. Um, certainly, it's a, a question that perhaps maybe some of the Roman Christians and and certainly some of the Jews uh could have had based on his preaching. Look at it with me in verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So basically the question he's asking for his listeners is uh if if God's grace gets typed PR, if it gets lots of likes on Facebook and Twitter, when a when a drug addict, when a gangbanger, when a when a frat boy, when a when a tax cheat, when a serial rapist, when a murderer um, is saved, why should we worry about how we live? Right? Aren't all these things, our sexual indiscretions, our our abusive behaviors, aren't they just the dark backdrop against which the light of God's grace can actually shine? So why worry about it? If it just provides the backdrop for, for God to look so amazing, why worry about how we live? Why not continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, after all, in, in verse 20 of chapter 5, the, the passage you just looked at last week, Paul says, where sin abounds, heaven, grace abounds all the more. And you can see how people begin to to misunderstand Paul's teaching. So just live any way you want and God's grace will cover that way of life. That's what the question kind of implies. Right? God likes to forgive. I like to sin. It seems like just a a perfect match, right? That's That's what this question seems to imply. And so people actually were saying this, according to, to verse 8 of chapter 3. They were, they were transforming God's scandalous, unbelievable grace into the idea that why not do evil so that good So that God gets fame and honor and glory. Why not do evil that, that God gets the glory? So, what's Paul's response to? Look at it in verse 2. By no me. We could translate. Of course not. Certainly not. Or that's unthinkable. If we really wanted to go to like some modern translation, like, are you stupid? No. And he follows the sharp reaction as far. This sharp denouncement of such thinking with this question. Look at it with me in verse two. How can we who died to sin still live it? How can we who died to sin still live it? Now the question has an assumption or an assertion built into it, and the assumption is this the rolling Christians are dead. How can we who for Christians, the Roman Christians are dead in some regard, so quite absurdly he asked, "How can dead people live for something? How can dead people live for something? That doesn't make any sense I don't know if you've uh are a big follower of news, but there was a case just in the past week was it was the last week or two um where uh this, maybe you heard about it, this 63-year-old man in Romania went to court to appeal the ruling that he was dead. He actually went to court to appeal the ruling that he was dead. The, the man's name is Constantine or I, I don't know how you pronounce his last name. My tongue isn't meant to pronounce it correctly, but he he actually appeared in court to fight the ruling that he was dead. What happened was, he had gone off to Turkey early, many years earlier, like 20 years earlier, to, uh, to work, to, to find gainful employment for his family, and, and for a whole host of reasons, ended up staying there, out of contact with his wife. His wife th- filed for a certificate of death. It was granted. He shows up 10 years later, and the court says, you aren't alive. And so, he shows up in court to appeal it guess what appeal denied you're not alive the uh, the the ruling was apparently final and cannot be appealed to any higher court in Romania. The man Constantine is dead, and so guess what that means to Here's his words. He said, "I'm officially dead, though I'm alive. I have no income." And because I'm listed dead, I can't do anything. So here's the predicament he's in. He's actually alive. But he can't work. He can't apply for any social services in Romania. He can't apply for health insurance. He can't pass a credit check. He's dead. Dead people don't live. Dead people don't do things. And that's the exact thing Paul uh, is asserting here in Romans with the Christians. He's suggesting that the Roman Christians, that that all of us who are in Christ, we are dead people as far as sin goes. That being the case, you've got no recourse. You can't do things in that sphere. You can't live to sin. You're dead. There's nothing you can do with sin. It's an impossibility. It's just impossible. If we're dead to sin, how can we live in sexual rebellion for God? If we're dead to sin, how can we serve our pride and, and continue to lash out in anger when those around us don't respond as we desire? If we're dead to sin, how can we continue in patterns of life That, that would indicate that we're very much alive to it. We are dead to sin. Again, look at the question, just wrap your mind about it in the verse 2. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? So it's like a round square. It's like a gentle torturer. It's like a towering midget. Christian living in sin is a contradiction in sin. Christian is one who has died for sin. Christian is one who has died for sin. One commentator uh, kind of rephrased the verse this way. He said, if we've left the country where sin is sovereign, we could not live in our old church there. Or, or do you not realize we've packed up and left there for good? Christians, those in Christ, are dead to sin and thus cannot possibly live in it any way. remember. Remember what we're reading. We're reading indicative. Statement of fact. What is? These aren't commands. These are not imperatives. This is just Paul simply telling us what is absolutely a fact. Not what he hopes to see, not what we need to do. What is? Those in Christ are those who have to. I just said, period. That is what is. And what these Roman Christians needed to understand, what you and I need to understand, is that Christianity is not merely a legal title, a declaration of forgiveness. It is certainly nothing to be But there is more. You see, sometimes. We limit Christ's work to the payment for penalties uh, for the penalty of sin, but these Roman Christians and some of us fail to see that Christ's work has broken the power of that cancelled sin. We so emphasize that that Christ has paid the penalty for sin that that sometimes it gets pushed out of view that that Christ has broken the power of sin in our lives. That's a statement of fact. That's not an imperative. That's not a command. That's not what we need to do. It's just a fact. A Christian is one who has died sin. So the question is, on what basis am I dead to sin? How are, how are Christians dead to sin? Look at verse 3. Again, Paul kind of answers by means of a question here. Something that maybe we should know, maybe we don't. Verse three: you Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So how is it? On what basis are Christians dead? Please hear me. It's not on the, the basis of your determination to be holy to be devoted to God, to be set apart for God. It is not on the basis of your effort to do better. It is not on on your consuming passion to please God. That is not the basis on which we are dead to sin. We are dead to the power of sin based on our union with Christ in God. Notice the phrases here, he yes in this question. Look at it again with you. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ? have been baptized into his death? Into. We're joined into him. Some 50 years ago, one author asserted this. Without our understanding, union with Christ. Our view of the Christian life would be gravely the spirit. This author, John Murray, continues, Union with Christ is really the central truth. So hear this salvation is is not merely a matter of belief or cognitive understanding. It's not just a legal declaration made about us by God that our sins are forgiven, but it is, in fact, union and communion with the living Lord Jesus Christ. We participate in the life of God and as such have a new identity. This may come uh, as a surprise to some of us, but when the New Testament talks about uh, the people of God doesn't really use the word. you know what it says almost a, almost two hundred times you've seen two hundred times it says we're in we're with Christ right and it's talking about union with christ the the New Testament uses this this idea over and over again John. Peter, Paul, they all pick up on this idea of union with Christ. Sometimes we see the picture of a head and a body. Christ is the head, and we are the body that grows into it. Right? You never think of just a hand. You never are just walking down the street and just see a hand laying there. If you do, that's a bad thing, right? Agreed. You never just see a hand. What? It's always connected to an entire body. And and the New Testament uses this picture of Christ the head and us being the body that's part of Him. Sometimes John uses a picture of uh, of a a vine and the branches or a a tree trunk and the branches. If you drive all around Syracuse right now because of the snow and ice over the past month, you'll see branches that have been ripped from the tree. Guess what? They're now dead. They're no longer in union with that branch, that trunk, and they no longer get life-giving, the life-giving things I don't know what saying, that the trunk gives. Right? If we just know it, and yet this is the picture used that used in the New Testament is that the vine is connected to the trunk. We're in union with Christ. This is the, the picture of a a bride and a groom, how they become one. Right, if if you talk bad about my wife Kristen and 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 you write things about her on Facebook, and then you come up to me and you want to be buddy buddy, well, first we have to work things out because we're not really separate. You you've insulted me by insulting my wife, right? I'm in union with my wife Kristen. We're one, and that's the image used in the New Testament. We're one with Christ. Now we don't understand exactly how you know how that happened. We can't see Christ, but we are one with Him. Again, indicative statement in of fact. What is? So how? How are we united to Christ? The answer again is in verse three. Again, I want to hear the words. Look at verse three with me. Do you not know that all of us, who have been baptized into Christ? We're baptized into Christ? How are we united to Christ? In, In our our Now, I get this may be a, a difficult thing for some of us to, to grapple with, because for some of us, Baptism has been kind of reduced down, boiled down um, to a statement I am making about a decision I have made, and that is in sharp contrast. That it's not me primarily declaring what I'm deciding, but baptism primarily declares what Christ has done in his death, burial, and resurrection, and testifying to the fact that God, by his Spirit, has graciously applied that to me and included me in the life of Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, just so we're clear, Paul is not teaching any sort of salvation by baptism. Right? We're saved by Christ, by his death. By his person and work, and baptism is meaningless apart from that. But it is profoundly meaningless. As, as a as a sign of initiation, inclusion, incorporation into that. It's a sign of that forgiveness posted on us. It. It's a it's a seal that takes the general blessing of of new life and it and it assures of us a, a, assures us of it in particular. It's like a brand or an imprint imprint that's placed upon our lives. That's what baptism is. It's a sign of our participation in what Christ has already accomplished. So baptism here in this passage is not just referring to the moment we actually go under the water. It's referring to that and the event of which it points of which it is affirmed. Doug Moore writes this. He said, "The early church conceived of faith, the gift of the Spirit, and water baptism as components of one unified experience." Let me just read that again. The early church conceived of faith, the gift of the Spirit, and water baptism as one unified experience, which can be called conversion initiation. Baptism stands for the whole conversion initiation experience. Presupposing faith and the gift of the Spirit. So, we are dead to the power of sin based on our union with Christ in baptism. And verse 4 has the corollary statement three. It kind of up the ante, takes it a bit further. Let's just see a fuller picture of what it is. Look at it with me. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We didn't just die to something, because Christ didn't simply just die to something. He rose again. He conquered the grave. And what happened? Because we were joined to him. Well, if he rose up, we had no choice. We rose with him, right? We lived. Paul's saying here before, in a new land, in a new country, under a new power, under a new gracious, benevolent king, with a new purpose and for new joy. Paul tells Titus, the younger Titus, Titus II, that Christ gave himself to redeeming from all violence, to glorify for himself his people, for his own possessions, who are zealous for good works. Paul sees sin not just as something we do, Paul sees sin as a cruel master that imprisons all who are. In the language of Roman 5, in Adam. And when we're in Adam, we're not able not to sin. Let me just say that again so we make sure we get that. When we're in Adam, we're not able not to sin. In other words, we're bound to sin. We we must sin. In fact, we delight in in giving ourselves to patterns of rebellion. What we're that we've been crucified with Christ, so that we would die for that And that we would live to a new life. So that now, in Christ, we are able not to sin. We are now able not to sin. It's a fact. It's not an imperative. It's not a command. It's just able not to resist sin. We are able to, to resist it to the Lord in the midst of the lies that the world and the enemy would, would throw at us and just destroy Jesus' words, that we're powerless against them. To, to resist its pull and its enticement. We need to pick up our book and listen? Because it doesn't say Adam, and that verse is just what That one's been ripped up and thrown away. It says Christ. And therefore, we are those who are dead to It's a fact. We have been freed from both the penalty and the power of sin. We can walk away from sin. So baptism, it depicts, a funeral, it depicts a funeral. It depicts a funeral. It a funeral. The old man God. Anemia has been really easy. So what, what Paul's telling us in this passage is that Jesus' death for sin ensures our death to sin because we are one with him. Jesus' death for sin ensures our death to sin because we are one with him. We are empowered to live a new life to and for God by our union with Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus' death affects my death to the power of sin. We're dead to the power of sin by the death of Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, but but don't we sin? Don't we we struggle with sin? What the Lord is is saying to Paul this morning is that if you understand your baptism, it's impossible to willingly and cheerfully consent to sin. If we understand what's happened, it's impossible to willingly and cheerfully go along with what the old Adam was, our old slave was. It's impossible to live a life defined by, by sin rather than the righteousness God delights in. And that God will work in us. No, Paul isn't denying the Lord. He gets it. This is how he get to Romans 7. He fully understands it. He's not unaware of the struggle with sin. Again, Doug Moore writes this. He says, what we were in, Adam, is no more. But, until heaven, the conclusion to live in Adam are reasoned. Sometimes, for some reason, we think about going back to the grave. Yes, there will be a war. Yes, there will be a struggle. Yes, there will be angst over sin. Sin that looks ever so appealing and wonderful. But but this angst, this brawl, this uh, this hostility in us is precisely what is not present. Before we died. Before we died for our kingdom. That hostility wasn't there. We just, we went it. Sin was simply our cruel cool master, and we were okay with it. We simply served it. But now, we have a new master. Our Lord, our, our King. No, sin doesn't die to us. It appeals to us to come back to its full dominion. Sin doesn't die to us, we die to it. The old slave master, it wants to take us back. But in our baptism, we move from that country to a new country where he isn't supreme anymore. We're not weak and helpless to sin's destiny. But then, think indicative, statement of fact, what is? We are dead. The power of sin by the death of Christ, Christian. This is your reality. Jesus' death for sin ensures our death to sin because of our union. with sin. How should we respond to this pastor? What, what are the implications? First, I think we need to forsake. Any idea that because you've been saved by grace, that you have license to live without regard to God? Because if you think that, you simply misunderstood the work of what became Christ. Christ died to us both from the penalty. Have. Second, understand that that the Christian life is not merely a legal disposition handed down by a judge, but it is union and communion with the living Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity isn't a mere statement of forgiveness that sends us out into the world to live on our own power, to live on our own abilities, but it's a participation in Christ's life. Mm -hmm. I think think just the statement of fact calls us to celebrate Christ's victory over the power of sin for us. Receive it as a fact. Remind yourself of it. Believe it. Marvel at it. Respond to him because of it. It, It's really sometimes unbelievable, isn't it? But it is certainly cause the celebration when we believe And finally, for those of you weighed down by sin, overcome with sin, beaten up by sin, maybe you've never trusted in Christ, you feel the weight and the guilt of sin, there is freedom held out to you this morning in union with Christ. You simply, by faith, receive Christ, trust in His work, to deliver you from the penalty and the power of sin and walk in newness of life. Maybe some of you need to turn in faith and trust. Jesus' death is sin. Jesus death. because of our you. Father. by your spirit, through your words, through your memory, spirit. I pray that you would awaken to a new certainty. Open our eyes to the thrilling reality that we are, in fact, dead to the power of spirit. May you cause us with assurance to, to breathe a uh, breathe a, a sigh of relief that we are no longer slaves to sin. May you protect us from the lies of our enemies, which seem so real that that it's inevitable that that we'll entertain and gladly consent and give way to pattern of sin. And now may we rejoice. Cause us to rejoice in who Christ is and what He has done. And our joining us to buy us food. We pray for this.